Lucas on Life. Hello, welcome to Lucas on Life. I'm Jeff Lucas. Now, here's an image that you might recall from a popular TV show. Six people are dancing around in a fountain in Central Park in New York. Ring any bells? You've got it. Friends was an American TV sitcom which aired on NBC from 1994 to 2004, lasting 10 seasons. I say Friends was, the endless repeats are available everywhere globally. With an ensemble cast starring Jennifer Aniston, Courtney Cox, Lisa Kudrow, Magna Blank, Matthew Perry and David Schwimmer, the show revolved around six friends in their 20s and 30s living in Manhattan in New York City. Friends received critical acclaim throughout its run, becoming one of the most popular TV shows of all time. It was nominated for 62 Primetime Emmy Awards, winning the Outstanding Comedy Series Award in 2002. Remember the opening music, and it's all right, I'm not going to sing it. So no one told you life was going to be this way. Your job's a joke, you're broke, your love life's DOA. It's like you're always stuck in second gear when it hasn't been your day, your week, your month, or even your year, but I'll be there for you when the rain starts to pour. I'll be there for you like I've been there before. I'll be there for you because you're there for me too. Beautiful serenade to friendship. Well, just a few days ago, the world discovered that the US actor James Michael Tyler, best known for his role as Gunther in Friends, had died aged just 59. Gunther, as a character, worked as a waiter and manager in the popular sitcom's coffeehouse, Central Perk, and he became a popular figure among Friends fans, partly because of his deadpan delivery. Throughout the show, he had a crush on Jennifer Aniston's character, Rachel, who also worked there as a waitress in the early seasons. Tyler passed away peacefully at his home in Los Angeles just a few days ago, and according to a statement from his manager, the world knew him as Gunther, the seventh friend from the hit series Friends, but Michael's loved ones knew him as an actor, musician, cancer awareness advocate, and loving husband. The press release went on to say, if you met him once, you made a friend for life. Tyler was diagnosed with advanced prostate cancer in 2018, which later spread to his bones. The actor urged other men to get screened for the disease. He was a man who, in real life, was a great friend, playing a character in a show that celebrated friendship. Friendship. How are we doing? It was one of those faintly ridiculous and mildly hilarious Christian gatherings which always seemed to cheer me up no end. I spend so much time in Christian services, meetings, conferences, retreats and celebrations that I sometimes feel sorry for God. He apparently attends them all. I was particularly enjoying this meeting, not least because I had absolutely no responsibility for it. I spend my life waiting for the nod that signals that it's time for me to preach, which means that I can really just enjoy singing in worship. My mind is flitting around, thinking of what I'm about to say, and I'm invariably fiddling with my iPad, making last-minute adjustments before delivering the talk. And then, when I'm the one bringing the sermon, there's a consistent arrangement that I have to live with, the fact that I always have to listen to me. I've listened to myself blethering on quite a few times over the years, and I'm occasionally tempted to tell myself to belt up, though that would be rather odd. But at this particular service, I was looking forward to the luxury of listening to someone else. 
The worship leader, apparently nine years old, I exaggerate, but he did seem impossibly young, was leading a rather lilting song, but he had chosen the wrong key. I know this because all the men were trying to sing in a lower octave, but it was just too deep for most of us, which meant that there were moments in the song when we had to go up into falsetto mode. The result was the sound of a notational symphony, cacophony more like, where the men alternated between gruff, off-key bass tones and high-pitched squealing. If any passing angels had noise-cancelling headsets built into their halos, they were certainly using them now. The worship song had at least 58 verses. Well, actually six, but that's how it felt. And I was trying very hard not to laugh out loud. When things go wrong during services, leaders often notice people watching them to see what their reaction is. I so wanted to guffaw, but it would not have been appropriate, so I busied myself with the thought pattern that I use when wanting to not giggle. I thought of painful death, of public shame, and then resorted to my old standby, which involves me being eaten alive by a marching army of Honduran fire ants. That took the smile off my face. But it was then that I heard a voice behind me, a deep, resonant voice, manfully belting out the lower bass line of the song. It was my friend Dick Foth. I decided to take a break from the shrieking and just listen to him singing. He has a nice voice. He's not going to fill any concert halls, but the man can sing. Dick's speaking voice is rather brilliant too. A one-time radio presenter, he has the perfect vocal timbre and texture for the medium. I've been told that when it comes to radio, I've got the perfect face for it, which is rather rude. But as I tuned into Foth, a realisation dawned that sparked immediate gratitude. Dick has been a baseline in my life. Strong, solid and substantial, his friendship, together with that of his wife Ruth, has undergirded my faith and helped keep the rhythm going for quite some time now. I first met Dick 30 years ago. A new immigrant to America, I was feeling homesick and bewildered, not so much by the culture, but by the church where I served as an associate pastor. Everything was different from church life in the UK. Men gathered for Saturday morning prayer meetings where they would laugh and joke about the football game they'd watched yesterday, but then instantly move into wailing and sobbing the moment someone said, let's pray. And then, at the moment when the corporate amen was sounded, it was back to levity and sports again. I just couldn't understand why God apparently wanted us to howl and cry all the time. Repentance was big, and we did it every Sunday morning, owning the shame of the sins of the entire planet. I was bewildered because God seemed to be very tetchy, if not downright angry. Suffering from suffocating homesickness, I wondered if it was time for my family and me to return to Blighty. And then I went off to a men's weekend retreat. I wasn't hopeful because the place was packed with chaps sporting massive beards who wore baseball caps and check flannel shirts. It looked like a lumberjack convention. I didn't own a flannel shirt. All hats perched on my head in a way that looked awkward. And the last time I tried to grow a beard, my face resembled a guinea pig's backside. When I opened my mouth to speak, my British accent gave me away. And so now I was the novelty item, a beardless, flannelless, capless, hapless foreigner. Booking homebound flights seemed like a very sensible thing to do. Until the speaker for the weekend stood up, that is. It was Dick Foth. 
He had an endless supply of fascinating stories. He didn't seem to think that God was irritated with us all. And on the contrary, when he talked, I felt like God was really rather delighted to know me. I can't remember a thing he preached about. People often say this of preaching and preachers, which is just so encouraging to those of us who preach. But there was something about him that thawed the spiritual chill that had crept into my soul. And it warmed my heart towards being in America again. I decided to stay. That was the last time I saw Dr. Foth until I was asked to speak at Bethany Bible College in California, where Dick was then serving as president. As chapel speaker, it was my privilege to have dinner with the president. Dick was wrestling with a migraine headache, so the dinner was probably a big chore for him, but I was thrilled. And then, years later, Dick and Ruth decided to relocate to Fort Collins, Colorado, and become part of Timberline Church, where I serve as a teaching pastor. He joined our team, and although his role has morphed so that he's not part of the day-to-day operation anymore, he and Ruth still make a significant contribution to the life of our church. And so my bassline singing friend is a regular part of my life now. Thanks for singing the bassline for me, Dick, and thanks for keeping him in tune, Ruth. Please keep singing along for many, many years to come. It was a dark day in every sense. The hospital staff had thoughtfully dimmed the lights of the small private ward where my father lay dying. The fluorescent glare was banished, replaced by a softer, warmer lamp, a light to die in. I had rushed into the hospital, summoned by the stark words that say so much, you'd better come right away. My mother sat by his side, dabbing her eyes, holding his hand, whispering reassurances. This was the scene that I'd imagined for months, during long nights where sleep eluded me. It was not my father's death that I feared. I knew that he'd made his peace with God. After years of silent anger against heaven, the result of a lost youth spent in Italian and German prisoner of war camps, and the sights and sounds that had been his daily existence through those long years, he had come to terms now with the news that there was a God who cared for him. During a long, hot summer in America, my dad had finally invited Jesus to take charge of his life. That evening, he came with me on a preaching engagement in Central Oregon. I remember the joy of pointing up into the balcony and announcing to the congregation, that's my dad. He became a Christian today. They clapped and cheered and stamped their feet, and he stood up and waved like a member of the royal family. It was a happy day. And then a stroke had hijacked his brain and robbed him of the ability to speak. He had become a silent prisoner of his own body, fully coherent and intelligent, but sentenced to the moment-by-moment frustration of being utterly unable to communicate, except by grunts and hand signals. It was a cruel fate for a man whose favourite thing in life was conversation, but like the prison sentence of his youth, he bore the solitary confinement with brave dignity. The final blow came when they told us that he was dying of emphysemia. It was this that had robbed me of sleep, that he would die in difficulty. I begged God to allow my father to die peacefully. My dad now was in a morphine-induced coma, and I knew the moment that I saw him that it would not be long. They did their best to make him comfortable. My mother went out for a well-earned few minutes of fresh air, and I sat quietly with my father's hand in mine. And then I remembered one very special evening a couple of years earlier. Something remarkable happened when I was staying at my parents' home for the night. I was tucked up in bed, it was past 11, and there was a knock at the bedroom door. 
The incomprehensible murmuring outside the door told me that it was Dad. Even though the stroke had robbed him of his speech, he never stopped trying. I invited him to come in, but wondered what could he possibly want. It was late in the evening, and we couldn't have any kind of conversation, so what was bringing him into my room now? I will never forget the moment when Dad came to the side of my bed, knelt down, and then slowly and carefully took the blankets and the sheets and tucked me in, just like he had when I was tiny. He brushed a stray hair away from my forehead, kissed me on the cheek, and was gone. He could not speak, but he dramatically expressed his loving care for me that night. I remember lying there for a long time, a man with almost grown children of my own, feeling warm and safe and loved. And now, conscious that my dad was struggling just hours from death, perhaps minutes, I felt that it was time to return the compliment. I will never know if he understood, but I whispered in his ear, Dad, it's Jeff. I love you so much. Soon you're going to be with Jesus, Dad. It may feel bad now, but you're safe, Dad. I'm going to tuck you in. I took the hospital blanket and the crisp white sheet and tucked it into the underside of the mattress. I hope my dad knew. A couple of hours later, it was time for him to leave. My dad was always a joker. He loved to laugh and kept us guessing even in death as well. The nurse, searching for a pulse, could find none. He's gone, she declared, solemnly but warmly. No, he's not. He's back. Now he's gone. No, he's back. She waited a full minute or two, unwilling to take us on the emotional roller coaster any longer. Finally, she spoke again. Yes, he has gone now, and this time he had. Mum and I both burst into tears, and I leaned over to kiss my dad's still warm forehead, and then the telephone at his bedside rang. Who could it be? The nurse answered the phone and announced that it was someone wanting to speak to me. A Dr Chris Edwardson from America was on the line. Chris and Jeannie Edwardson are our closest friends. Our families have holidayed together for years. Chris is my closest confidant. I took the phone. Jeff, he said, it's Chris. Look, I'm in Canada and I'm driving right now, but God spoke to me and told me that I should track you down because you needed me to call right now. What's going on? I told my friend that my dad had died less than 30 seconds earlier and that I was right beside him now. That's why the Lord asked me to call you, Jeff. I'm your friend and I love you. Your dad is with Jesus now. I'm praying for you and Jeannie and I will be over to be with you in the next few days. I put the phone down and marveled. There was I at one of the most poignant moments of my life. Many times I'd quizzed Chris about my dad's likely death with the challenge of emphysemia. And now as a gift of grace from God, he had called me from the other side of the world at the precise moment that I needed him. Truly, a friend when I was in need. I had tucked my dad in, and now a similar warmth and security came as I realized the incredible blessing of genuine friendship. God is kind, and I'm grateful for friends. We've been reflecting on just how vital friends are for us, and us for them. When trouble comes, without sounding like a quote from a famous movie, who are we going to call? Jesus had Peter, James, and John. Daniel had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When the clouds gather, who will we call upon? See you next time. Lucas on Life.